In part one of this series, we will be discussing the two broad areas of honesty and awareness. By honesty, we mean honesty to be your feelings, to trust your sense of humor, to trust your anger, your love in interpersonal relations. Now to the first characteristic of honesty, sense of humor. A philosophical, unhostile sense of humor that elicits a smile, usually more than a laugh, that is intrinsic to the situation rather than added to it, that is spontaneous rather than planned, and that very often can never be repeated. Mm -hmm. Well, it's inventive and creative and fits the situation. Uh, one thing I learned from these people originally was to slough off the, uh, our cultural thing, you know, about uh, Bob Hope and Jack Benny and so on as humorists. Well, I don't know if they have any sense of humor or not. They just say what other people write. And we think of that as humor, uh, wisecracks and so on. And we don't make enough of the Mark Twain kind of thing or best of all of the Abraham Lincoln kind of thing, which I, one could speak of Lincoln-esque humor and make the point. Now the, the, uh, the lesson, uh, what I learned, the lesson that I learned was, uh, at the extremes anyhow, that the uh, many actual instances of humor were hostile. Uh, in the extreme instance, the, the worst community I ever lived in uh, they made fun of a feeble-minded boy and the other kids would plague him, run after him, pull at him and so on with the, their fathers and so on, the adults smiling very indulgently. That was very amusing. Their kids were having a good time. And I remember one time throwing rocks at this feeble-minded boy. And I, I still remember that clang on his skull and the, the boy crying and everybody then laughing. This was a climax of laughter. Well, that's the most naked example I can think of of the kind of hostile, essentially hostile humor, which means making fun of somebody else or laughing at somebody uh, slipping on a banana peel, you know. And the contrast is tremendously great because what's involved in Lincoln-esque humor or in the Adlai Stevenson uh, kind of uh, humor uh, is really... Uh, a laughing at the human condition. It's a good-natured laughter at all the silliness of the whole business, the uh, ludicrousness of the human situation. Um, and, of course, there's no barb. It doesn't hurt anybody. This actually, in a certain sense, teaches uh, somebody something. Uh, well, this is all the instances are creative. That is, they happen once, they happen on the spur of the moment, or response to a particular situation, which may never happen again. And uh, we must learn to make that differentiation. Social interest. They have, for human beings in general, a deep feeling of identification, sympathy, and affection in spite of the occasional anger, impatience, or disgust. Well, the, the negative emotions uh, come um, mostly from, uh, oh, hypocrisy, phoniness, cruelty, cr 
cruelty would arouse oh that's a point that ought to be made I, I'm not I don't remember whether I made it sufficiently well in this writing but uh, these are all people who who get angry uh, they get angry at at a it's uh, it's what Eric Fromm called reactive anger it's anger at a situation now the situations are generally one of uh, cruelty uh, or pomposity that was uh, couldn't be shrugged off or uh, faking uh, one way or another um, then they could be angry and I've seen them uh, it's, uh, that's the way they behave I called it once righteous indignation it's not just wild uh, store of anger in the guts that gets out at the wrong target it's not like that at all um, Partly, uh, by the way, the word originally, uh, what I saw fitted Alfred Adler's word, the German word, Gemeinschaftsgefühl, of which social interest is not a very good uh, translation, but that's the one he used, of a feeling uh, somehow of some degree of identification with the human species, with a very wide circle of people, uh, an easy sharing of uh, humanness, uh, a, a very easy breaking through social, artificial, uh, trivial barriers and boundaries and classes and castes and so on. Um, then uh, also a concern, a desire to help. And uh, most of my subjects, uh, certainly all the men, uh, the women, to some extent, uh, some of them are simply uh, zeroed in on their own uh, clan and their own family, but uh, most of them were doing something about it. That is, these were people who had, uh, out of compassion, um, do, tried to do something to help. And so they were involved. One might say that all of them had some unselfish involvement, not purely selfish involvement. I could say it in another way, once I did love identification, or identification love, that mean not romantic love, but uh, simply love for your brothers of a, a certain degree. Uh, you could see this in um, Eugene Debs, for instance, who's an excellent example, um, who's, whom I studied through books and words to use as a public example, since I couldn't use my private people. Uh, Debs could get angry. And on the other hand, clearly he was a loving person and tried to help in his way, various ways, uh, to help humanity. He had this uh, feel, to translate that word a little more literally, this feeling of commonness with mankind. Gemeinschaftsgefühl. Um, Walt Whitman uh, would also, this nursing experience uh, could be a good example. One of my men, by the way, was uh, originally, uh, he helped in the old days with labor union organizing, then got out of it when it turned uh, messy, uh, and turned to teaching children uh, and somehow uh, kept his life filled with uh, trying to help people and willing to fight when that fighting was necessary.
interpersonal relations. They are capable of more fusion, greater love, more perfect identification, more obliteration of the ego boundaries. Uh, this too I learned uh, from my subjects and I've gone on with uh, trying to understand this better. I've written a little about it and finally changed the, uh, the terminology into at the extreme a differentiation of levels of love, that is higher love, lower love. And I've spoken about be as in being, being love, meaning love for the being of the other by contrast with deficiency love, which means love for the purveyor of basic need gratifications. Uh, the one who applauds you, you love in that sense. Uh, this other one, the higher love for the, uh, the more pure love, whether in a person, um, your wife or your husband or your child or your friend, uh, I think it can be best exemplified as for the kind of admiration it is and love for the quality of the, per of the other person. It comes close to admiration and so on. Is the fact, let's say that I could say that uh, I love Abraham Lincoln. Now, he's never done anything for me. He hasn't satisfied any, you know, he hasn't given me anything. Uh, he's long dead. And it must be clearly uh, an admiration for his qualities which are love-worthy, lovable. He calls for it, so to speak. Now this is possible with a person, if you're lucky. Uh, it doesn't happen uh, very frequently in adolescence. The, in adolescence, growing up, they will tend, since they're looking for basic need gratification still, of, uh, of esteem, respect, uh, dignity, and self-esteem, affection and the like, uh, they will normally tend to be at this deficiency love level, which contrasts very greatly with this other one. Plus, they can stop it off. One supplier of narcissistic supplies, of uh, narcissistic gratifications, uh, one supplier stops, you get another supplier, that's all. And then they admire satisfied customers, you might call it. Whereas the other is a different kind of thing, is the admiration, the appreciation, the perception of uh, the, uh, the qualities in the other person that call for admiration and love. By awareness, I mean the ability to know what is going on inside, to express what's going on inside, to be aware of one's world, to know what's going on, to see and to hear, and to be aware of those magic moments or peak experiences that have special significance for each of us. More efficient perception of reality and more comfortable relations with it. They live more in the real world of nature than in the man-made mass of concepts, abstractions, expectations, beliefs, and stereotypes that most people confuse with the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the way I'd say it uh, today, it, it might be more a shortcut. Uh, well, first of all, it's as if they had clear eyes. They seemed to uh, see more, they were more perspicuous. They could see 
Uh, I remember one of the things that I was so impressed with, Chris, was they could see through phonies. They couldn't be fooled somehow. They could spot, uh, you couldn't con them. <laughs> uh, there was that. And then they didn't seem to come in with a prioris. That is, whatever thing was, it, it was. Uh, where for most people, they've got some sort of preconception about it, about what it ought to be, or what it might be, or what the book says it should be, or, and so on. I think today I would add to that uh, something like the, the conception of the intuitive, uh, the mathematical genius, you know, who's just born uh, uh, perceptive in this particular style. It was as if, uh, as if these people could come to a good judgment with insufficient evidence. That was it. It's as if they leaped to a right conclusion. Uh, and then I might wonder, well, how did you figure that out? You know, I, uh, I couldn't get it frequently. But they seemed to be correct. They seemed to be right more often. Their judgment was good and sound. Uh, I learned to, uh, uh, this after I was an interpersonal relationship, I learned to take their advice, uh, and their judgments, their predictions, and the like. Now, the, the, this is also, of course, that's the way it started, and this is a personal, logical, clinical impression, but uh, the research uh, we set up once, we never got it done because of money and so on, but the research is, is quite uh, feasible, it's quite uh, uh, an easy uh, research in principle to do. Uh, we were going to select out the healthiest 1% of the college population uh, with the tools that we have, psychiatric interviews, projective workups, personality tests, and so on. And uh, then compare these people in a battery of, uh, now I wanted to start with the sensory modalities, two-point threshold and acuity of, of color uh, uh, differences and so on. In this sense even, I mean, more efficient perception of uh, reality, that would be the hypothesis that I would test. I'd say there's a 50-50 chance even at that level that they simply smell more efficiently which we can measure, of course. But in addition to this, with the cognitive tests, I, had, I was going to use this Einstellung test, for instance, uh, and there would be others of this sort, the old Woodworth and Sells atmosphere effect uh, of being misled by false syllogisms. I was going to use that in this setup. And in that sense, I would say, I would predict that uh, there could be uh, testably in the laboratory for our healthiest, psychologically healthiest 1% of the population in these uh, functionally and operationally definable ways, just sharper vision, uh, sharper acuity through uh, befuddlement, and not as easily fooled by the nonsense uh, lying advertising that we have, um, in this sense, more efficient perception of reality. Continued freshness of appreciation, the wonderful capacity to appreciate again and again, freshly and naively, the basic goods of life with awe, wonder, and even ecstasy. One way to say this uh, is that um, these, these basic things are all miracles. Uh, if you were to think um, 
if you were to think uh, how the world would look to you if you were to die, let's say, you were told you are to die in a month or two, then how a sunset would look, or how the fall colors would look, or how a cute baby would look, or a pretty girl. Uh, the miracles, actually the miracles of life are, the, are repetitive. Uh, the most important things are flowers and uh, sunsets and, and so on. Well, for most people, familiarization breeds lack of attention and uh, it's kind of an adaptation down of the emotional reaction and a loss of reaction. Well, a miracle remains a miracle, even if it happens every morning. And these people somehow, well, I report descriptively, that they just responded to them as miracles, in spite of the fact that they happened a great deal. And this impressed me very much, this uh, recognition of uh, a pretty girl, well, a handsome man, a, a, a fine old man, let's say. Uh, and of course, uh, babies, flowers, trees, mountaintops, these people just enjoyed them. They enjoyed them freshly. They enjoyed them again and again and again. Whereas for the average person, he'd keep looking for something new all the time. The peak experience, the mystic experience, the oceanic feeling. Feelings of limitless horizons opening up to the vision, the feeling of being simultaneously more powerful and more helpless than one ever was before, the feeling of great ecstasy and wonder and awe, the loss of placing in time and space with, and finally the conviction that something extremely important and valuable has happened. Yeah, it's a very good thing for a person. <laughs> magic moments uh, in, in an article I read today they recall. Well, uh, there is some history uh, here which I think would be of interest. In my subjects at first, what I stumbled across, this I wasn't looking for, were what I had to call mystic experiences. There were reports of such experiences. And I had come into this uh, investigation with the normal equipment of the normal person of the culture, thinking that mystical experiences happen to one saint, you know, every century or something like that. And here I kept, uh, people would talk to me in the same words as the Saint Teresa or Meister Eckhart or some of these other people that I'd read, uh, the famous mystics. Well, I've put it down that way. And, uh, but then kept on discovering uh, more and more that these came from many triggers. Uh, they came from all kinds of sources, uh, from the love experience or the, the uh, being on top of a mountain or just being taken over by music or somebody going along a seashore and then just going into this state. And I had to generalize it. And furthermore, I had to strip it of its traditionally, historically religious, specifically religious meaning, because it turned out not to be. Uh, the peak experiences came from many, many things, many triggers. Uh, once I tried to generalize them as anything that moves, anything that comes close to perfection, a, 
an experience of perfection will produce a peak experience. Whether in uh, athletics, in one of my subjects, uh, a young man breaking through with the ball into an open field and then running uh, down the field and reporting in the same words that ancient mystics had used. This was a 17-year-old boy. Uh, or uh, totally stumbling across this by the purest accident of the women in natural childbirth reporting ecstasies of mystic experiences or peak experiences. So what I want to do is to generalize that. I found since that uh, peak experiences uh, do not occur, they're not the exclusive prerogative of one pantheon of, of, of people, uh, but they occur uh, very widely through the population. It looks now uh, and a, a preliminary statement would be that the higher the degree of psychological health, the greater the frequency of peak experiences, the higher they reach, uh, the uh, more intense uh, they are, and the more illuminated, that is, the more cognitive they are, the more you learn from them. Uh, if you see the world in the peak experience in, in a more pure form, uh, this can be remembered. Uh, some people do remember, some people don't remember. Uh, the people who do remember tend to be changed, uh, just as the ancient mystics reported. This, by the way, is being researched with now. Discrimination between ends and means. Strongly ethical, they have definite moral standards, their notions of right and wrong are often not the conventional ones. They are fixed on ends rather than means. A good way of saying that to students, I think, is uh, to say that it's as if these people know what is right and wrong. Now, this cuts them off from a large proportion of the American population who don't seem to know that, who don't have any right and wrong that's solid and constant, and that they've worked out for themselves. Uh, most people tend in this respect to be other-directed or culturally relative, ethically relative, as to feel uh, not universal about it, not as if there were some uh, universal uh, right and wrong, but only as if it were some local thing, a fashion, rather, a folkway, then uh, they would speak of mores instead. This is a tricky business because um, it involves the question of absolute rights and wrong. Well, all I can say is that uh, my people uh, knew what, what for them was right and wrong. That's a more cautious statement. And they didn't get all tangled up about it. And they didn't get suggested out of it very easily. You couldn't uh, kid them out of it. And I doubt in the experiments that we had, if we had uh, the, the kind of experiment in which you have uh, five stooges suggesting against the person, uh, I don't think it would work with these people. They know what they think is right. Again, they have a kind of an inner Supreme Court, which they refer to, rather than to look it up in a book or what mommy or daddy said or what the local customs are 
among the other uh, kids. Uh, they look within uh, for the answer to the ethical questions. We have been visiting with Dr. Abraham Maslow discussing the first two broad areas of self-actualization, honesty and awareness. In part two of this series, you will again see him discussing the last two broad areas, freedom and trust. discussing with Dr. Abraham Maslow the characteristics of the self-actualized person. In part one, we discussed these characteristics and the two broad categories of honesty and awareness. Now in this part, we discuss the last two broad categories, freedom and trust. It is our hope that as you watch part two of this film, that you'll see these characteristics of the self-actualized person as values or goals that you as viewers, you as persons, might consider as recommended, might consider as valuable for your own lives. By freedom, I mean that ability to be spontaneous, to withdraw, if this is what you wish, to create to be whatever one is at the moment, no matter what that is, but to trust being that self, to be freely oneself. The quality of detachment, the need for privacy, they positively like solitude and privacy. It is often possible for them to remain above the battle, to remain unruffled, undisturbed. Well, I have, uh, I've, I've kept on working at that because uh, through all the years, uh, and I probably will continue to, because uh, it, from these people, one of the things I learned was finally a new conception of science. And in the book I have forthcoming on the psychology of science, I make the point, that, try to make it, I'm not sure how well it comes off, of the two kinds of detachment, two kinds of objectivity, one is the kind we all know, so I don't have to speak about it, but the other is, uh, you might say, Taoistic. Uh, if these people, uh, especially with people that they would love, or with a subject matter that they would love, enjoyed it so much that they were willing to let it alone, or with, as with a child, you, if you can delight in the self-actualization of the child, if you accept the nature of a child, then you keep your hands off it. You're so delighted with it, you don't want to change anything. And you don't do the way uh, uh, people do with, uh, or to take an example of so-called, quotes dog lovers, who really don't love dogs, most of them, who will uh, get a certificate, you know, that is, they love only dogs with certificates. 
and then they get them and, and chop off their tails or something of the sort or clip them in some particular way so that they conform to an a priori notion of what a dog, a nice, good, respectable, middle-class dog should be. But people, dog lovers just love them the way they are. So they are, in a certain sense, detached or objective, in the sense of not interfering with them. They, they let them be, and uh, then uh, enjoy them that way. Well, in this way, that is, if you make no demands upon the percept, if you don't twist it, demand anything of it, you let it be itself, uh, then uh, this is, in the oldest sense of the term objectivity and detachment, this is a better way to the truth about something, to seeing something as it is, not as you would like it to be or it should be. Uh, I'd like to add to that discussion uh, a discussion of privacy which I might make now, well, I've been preoccupied with it recently, and I think it's very important, uh, very specially important, and also as easily researched with, is my guess. Uh, these people, my subjects, they were very baffling in a way because um, they all refused to be tested. <laughs> I couldn't get any blasted one of them to take one single test. They just, they didn't approve the tests. Uh, also, except for professionals, they, they didn't want psychotherapy and they didn't like psychoanalysis. And each of them also uh, closed off some portion. I never got a really full, complete, whole picture from any single person. Uh, that description there is sort of a composite of all the people, and with some making up for the gaps in others. So these were uh, uh, people who, besides the strict sense of privacy, the fact that they like to be alone once in a while, and not in a crowd all the time, and that, uh, for instance, one of my subjects made it a rule, uh, no matter what. Every day from five to six, she sat in front of her fireplace and nobody was around. This was a very busy person. From five to six was sacred. I was alone. And she enjoyed being alone, wanted to be alone. <laughs> she had good company. <laughs> well, this, uh, my feeling is that if we could really l learn this lesson from these uh, very evolved, uh, very mature people, that I think we could get out of this adolescent stress on the kind of the, the group of puppies who are all clustering, the gang of kids who are all hanging out with each other, uh, which we call sociability, and move on toward this uh, other notion of people who don't share everything. They want to keep some things to themselves. Creativeness. A special kind of creativeness or originality or inventiveness that seems rather akin to the naive and universal creativeness of unspoiled children. Well, uh, let me speak of one of my subjects. This was my mother-in-law, uh, who was a very wonderful woman, uh, not educated uh, with her. By the way, her cause was the, the family, the clan, uh, bringing, not only bringing up her children, uh, 
who she loved so much, but also the uh, her brothers, sisters, and so on. Her home was the center for a whole clan. She just loved the... The family was an artistic job. Well, it was from her that I learned uh, to... She was the one who shook me out of the conception of creativeness, which I had picked up from my culture, and which had not been shaken by my first subjects, who were... Uh, conventionally creative as well as... Uh, but here was a woman who didn't paint or compose symphonies or write poems or books or anything of the sort, and who uh, clearly was an inventive person and who kept on as, in the, as a normal thing every day inventing... She had a very beautiful home and uh, she did this without any money. So they kept on being all sorts of the thing that the one click, of course, came one day when she had no money for for flowers, and she went out into the park and selected a lot of wild grasses, <laughs> and put them together, and it was just very very beautiful, and she was able to do that kind of thing. And I remember uh, with her, as I puzzled over this, uh, I remember cooking up this apothem, which was a kind of a breakthrough for me, when uh, suddenly I realized. A uh, first-rate soup is better than a second-rate poem. <laughs> uh, and uh, then that's an aha, you know. And I uh, tried to change the conception of creativeness to make it more general and not just confine it to those official departments. You know, this is official. Anybody who paints a painting is creative. Well, most paintings are lousy, and they're not creative at all. They're stereotyped, not efficient, and so on. It's like most things. And that's true for most music and most poems and, and so on. True inventiveness in the sense of uh, the spontaneous creation on the spur of the moment of something that beautifully fits the situation, that is creativeness. And then I tacked on this subscript, as I described it, creativeness sub-essay, you know, to mean self-actualizing creativeness, and to separate it from the conventional kind of uh, stuff where uh, anybody who paints anything or sculpts anything, well, that's creative. But you can be... I have worked with creative businessmen, for instance. I've worked with the... Uh, oh, and then, of course, the mothers who zero in on their family and their children and who do... a a beautiful and inventive, flexible job with the situation as it emerges. And of course, uh, the baby, and making a human being out of a baby is a big creative job. That beats any symphony. Spontaneity. Their behavior is marked by simplicity and naturalness, and by lack of artificiality or straining for effect. Uh, when I first saw that, I called it naturalness. Uh, it was the best word I could pick to describe what, after all, is, is hard to put into words. Uh, uh, ease of posture, uh, lack of uh, pretentiousness, and so on. Uh, again, since we mentioned Mrs. Roosevelt, you've got your example there of a, of a woman who well, her voice, for instance, was uh, squealy. It wasn't a good uh, speaking voice. And it didn't bother her too much. She spoke the way she spoke. 
and later on, in, in order to improve her effectiveness, actually got lessons in speaking, but was never ashamed, particularly, of the way she looked or the way she talked or whatever. And so this was true for all my subjects, that there was a kind of a... Oh, Lincoln, of course, gives the public example. And uh, uh, there, there are stories of Jefferson in the same way, of, of Jefferson not putting on the dog, you know, and Lincoln being casually uh, great rather than showing off or, uh, or demanding. If you get the difference between John Adams, let's say, in his uh, early years and, and Jefferson and Lincoln in theirs, or a, a modern example whom I never interviewed, I, 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 don't, I, I can't use him as a subject, but uh, who looked like some of these things is Adlai Stevenson. Uh, who could be normally uh, take it easy? Oh, I know how to say it. They weren't actors to an audience. <laughs> That's it. That's a good way of saying it. They weren't actors to an audience. It was as if they didn't have an audience particularly. Uh, or as if they were easy with their audience. They didn't have stage fright. They weren't paralyzed in any way. Um, they weren't playing to the gallery. Uh, it's as if, that's why I call it spontaneity, finally, as if it came out of themselves because there was something inside there that wanted to be expressed rather than something that was done for the sake of the people out there, for an audience, or to win applause, or something of the sort. Uh, this gives, of course, the sense of honesty. Also, it gives the sense of uh, a lack of striving and straining, and therefore you can call it simplicity, ease. Maybe another word is grace. And finally, by trust. I mean that ability to trust oneself deeply, to, to trans trust one's mission in life, to trust oneself, to trust others, and to trust nature. Problem centering. These individuals customarily have some mission in life, some task to fulfill, some problem outside themselves, which enlists much of their energies. Well, now I know much more about that than I did then. Now I'm very sure of this. As a matter of fact, I think it's almost sine qua non, at least until we get cross-cultural studies. Anyhow, for the American, uh, this is in all in all my subjects, this is true, of uh, the way in which I say it today, I think, is a better way for future research, for setting up hypotheses that we can uh, confirm and disconfirm, um, that the, the cause, well, no, let me say it this way, the search for identity, the search for self, and so on, is partly a search for your life work, for that which uh, suits best to this uh, real self that you're discovering. And uh, then they are the same kind of talk. I mean, it's, uh, discovering the real self means discovering your vocation in the old uh, priestly sense, your calling, the one which is your constitutional destiny, you might call it, uh, if you know yourself well enough, then you discover what you are best suited for, and then that is what makes you happiest, too, what you're most effective with, and the like. 
so that uh, these people, as a matter of fact, I prefer that, uh, that kind of phrasing. It, I think it's more, uh, more profound, uh, deeper phrasing, and also probably more uh, available for research in the future. It's, it's easier to set up in, in research form that the uh, self-actualization uh, means the making real of the inner self, which is understood as constitutional to some extent, temperamental, and that means what you love, what you're interested in, what excites you, what fascinates you, and that is the cause outside yourself, which paradoxically then becomes a defining characteristic of the self. Someone who loves his work, you, you can't say, well, how would you be if you didn't love that work? He'd say, well, I wouldn't be me, I would be something else. It's a defining characteristic of the self. Then, of course, they can become objective. They go, if, if you're fascinated with something, then you're interested in it out there. You forget about the ego and the self and pride and showing off and uh, applause and stuff like that because the fascinating thing out there becomes worthwhile in itself. Autonomy or inner directedness, independence of culture and environment, they are dependent for their own development and continued growth on their own potentialities and latent resources. Well, this was true for all subjects. Um, and of course, it's very hard to capture with words uh, an intangible quality like this. But uh, if I can use these intangible words, uh, I picked up the sense of these people being their own bosses somehow and of doing what they themselves decided to do and of being responsible to themselves uh, and not being weather vanes, not being uh, not very easy to influence. I think we could study this ex experimentally probably today. My guess is that in the ash kind of... Uh, suggest the, the uh, conformity situation, that these are the people who would resist uh, suggestions uh, more readily than others. It's testable enough. Uh, and that's the way they looked. They, it was as if they would choose what they wanted to do. You might urge them to do something, and somebody else might urge them, but it was their decision. It's very hard to describe the sense of... Uh, I picked up a phrase from Robert Louis Stevenson, one like, a clock's ticking on steadily through a thunderstorm. <laughs> the thunderstorm didn't affect them somehow. Uh, they were themselves, and um, not in the, in the current sense of the term, other-directed or uh, certainly not tradition-bound, and this led into the uh, discussion of uh, the resistance to enculturation, uh, because it's quite clear that this kind of person is more commonly human than our average American or our average anything else, since uh, it, they all seem to be like each other, and I would guess independent of the century, independent of the culture even. So I had. Uh, one man like this was, uh, was my 
the father, you, you know, in quotes, in the northern Blackfoot Indians. White-headed chief was an autonomous man. And he was autonomous in the same way that, uh, let's say, I thought Spinoza was, or, or Lincoln, who made up his own mind. You couldn't diddle him around. And so for Jefferson, if you read his letters, you see so much of, uh, of going against the grain, uh, quite willing to be unpopular, uh, if necessary. Uh, uh, Schweitzer is the beautiful and very obvious example of just following his own star and doing what he thought best and uh, walking through the laughing and the criticisms and so on as if it were water and he was a duck. It, it just went off. Didn't bother him. Um, I think you could take the other examples. Um, Mrs. Roosevelt would be another example. Uh, if you remember in the, uh, in the 30s, total denunciation from everybody. Everybody's making fun of her and so on. And she sailed calmly through the whole business and even forgave them because she, as she said, she understood it. How could you expect something else? And uh, she was very easy about that and went her own way. She created a new form for a president's wife, a new way of life, an active life. This was her invention, so to speak. Acceptance of self, others, of nature. They can take the frailties and sins, weaknesses, and evils of human nature in the same unquestioning spirit with which one accepts the characteristics of nature. Well, this was quite something to make my peace with, you know, to, uh, to understand uh, that, uh, uh, for instance, uh, women accepting femaleness, not getting caught up in the, uh, I wish I weren't a female, and, and not knowing how to be a female, and so on. And the men just sort of calmly being male and masculine, without doing the usual fighting about it with yourself. And uh, this, this generalized in many ways. It was as if, uh, this, well, this is like an extension of, it's not, of the perception of reality. It was as if they didn't fight with reality. Uh, leaves are green and they didn't feel, well, I could have done it better. <laughs> and it should have been something else. Um, they were quite relaxed in the world as it, as it is. Um, finding it a very nice world in, in, in many ways. And not having some kind of godlike feeling or a... a a scolding feeling that it should have been uh, different. Maybe that, I remember one kind of thing uh, that uh, I was doing other researches at the same time and found that many of my young girls there at, uh, at college, the young girl students, didn't like the way, uh, uh, there was much rebellion about the way babies were made. <laughs> uh, you know, they could have figured out a better system of reproduction instead of having labor pains and uh, so on and so on. Uh, well, these people somehow accepted the nature of trees and labor pains and um, 
pregnancy and the, the way squirrels do particular things, they're, they're squirrel-like, and this seemed to be approved of somehow. It was as, as if they were comfortably in, in their homes, uh, and as if they accepted the way in which the homes were set up. And they didn't make any snide remarks about the decorations or the arrangement of the furniture or anything of the sort. Quite comfortable in the world. Quite comfortable and approving and appreciative of the how interesting human nature is. Instead of having theories about how awful it is or how wonderful it should be and so on. In this sense, taking it as it came, acceptance was the word I used there. An example occurs to me that's not too private for me to talk about. Uh, Mrs. Roswell, well, she said this often enough in public. I was very much impressed uh, by Mrs. Roosevelt's uh, relating herself to the facts of human nature. That when she got into the United Nations work especially, uh, she was very calm about the fact that people in a group would disagree uh, she never seemed to get very mad about uh, just the, the shortcomings of, uh, let's say, if somebody couldn't understand something, she'd just explain it some more. Instead of feeling what a stupid fool he is, or how inadequate human intelligence is, or why weren't people made all saintly and good, or that kind of thing. Uh, and she read me a kind of a lecture, I forget the context, but I had said something that she was reproving me for, uh, it was about this politics. Uh, she said, uh, politics is a, is a way of working with human beings. And it was her way of extending her power, she said. That's the only way you have. It, it, was, uh, it was very easy, she, she said, for a woman to help two or three or four babies. In order to help two or three, four million babies, this is the way you do it. You get into committees and you sit around and get bored with uh, all sorts of details and so on. And she did it with great equanimity. That, I would say, was an example of the, the acceptance of the necessities of human nature. What might we conclude from all of this? First of all, as a clinical psychologist, I think that as counselors and therapists, we can learn a lot about what health and the functioning person is like by a study of Maslow's ideas. As a student, you might find in these principles, in these descriptions that we've talked about, some of the ideas for living, some of the ideas for being that seem characteristic of an individual who is functioning at his full capacity. And then finally, as psychologists, we're interested in a continuous study of individuals who have come to live the fully functioning, the creative life. Instead of going to the hospitals today to study sickness, many of us believe that there is much more fruitful a realm in the study of the self-actualizing person. <laughs>